Welcome to Moon Show, a For All Mankind podcast. I'm your host, Nick Yeager, and with me today are Rick. Moon Show. Oh, hi, Bob. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Scott. Hi, Bob. And Virginia. Hi, Bob. Yeah, Moon Show is an acceptable response. <laughs> <laughs> today, we will be discussing episodes six, seven, and eight of season one. We'll start with a synopsis of all three episodes and then move on to the discussion. Episode six, home again. Last week, we discovered Ed is a terrible father, and this week, he's an absent one. It's 1974, and he's living on the lunar base Jamestown, along with Gordo and Danielle. Karen is dealing with her son Shane, as well as Gordo and Tracy's son Danny, who are pulling destructive pranks at school, no doubt acting out because of their absentee fathers, who aren't coming home anytime soon, because the relief team of Apollo 23 never makes it to space. The shuttle explodes on the platform, killing 11 engineers, though the astronauts do manage to escape in their command module. NASA investigates what went wrong, initially suspecting the Russians, but then they realize it was faulty machinery. But there's more to it. NASA sends Margot to her old mentor, Von Braun, to get a report on the situation. Turns out NASA gave a contract to a shitty manufacturer for political reasons. The president, Ted Kennedy, needed votes for the Equal Rights Amendment. So the amendment passes, which is something that never happened in real life, but it's at the cost of those 11 lives. Margot at first refuses to see Von Braun and only goes under duress, but she does eventually take his advice concerning her career. She was recently passed up for a promotion to flight director. Not because she's a woman, in fact, another woman got the job, but because she's not perceived as a team player. So, as one does, she decides to blackmail NASA. They don't want the information about the faulty machinery going public, so she forces them to promote her in exchange for her silence. Episode 7. Hi, Bob. Ed? Hi, Bob. <laughs> Hi, Bob. <laughs> Ed, Gordo, and Danielle are still stranded on the moon, and the isolation in close quarters is taking its toll. They become obsessed with the Bob Newhart show, since it's the only entertainment they've got, and they take to greeting each other with the inside joke, Hi, Bob. In real life, Hi, Bob was a drinking game in the 70s, but for us, it's a moon show game. Hi, Bob. <laughs> moon life is especially hard on Gordo, who eventually has a complete mental breakdown. After he nearly takes off his helmet on a spacewalk due to a hallucination, Danielle and Ed realize he needs to go home. But if they tell NASA that he's psychologically unwell, he'll be grounded forever. So Danielle takes one for the team, breaking her arm deliberately so they'll have an excuse to go home on their lifeboat. Danielle and Gordo go back to Earth, leaving Ed alone on the moon, except for the Russians, who've also got a base up there. Meanwhile, NASA suspects Larry is gay, and they see this as a security risk. So Ellen and Larry get married to further their cover, which causes Pam to break up with Ellen. 
She's tired of the secrecy and Ellen's refusal to commit or even acknowledge the realness of their relationship. Karen finally tells Ed that Shane is acting out and he reacts about as well as you might imagine, doubling down on his poopy papa tactics. Shane acts out again to the surprise of no one besides Karen and she grounds her son, but he sneaks out of the house on his bicycle and gets hit by a car. Episode 8, Rupture. Ellen is going to be mission commander of the next Apollo mission, and Deke has assigned himself to be part of the crew because it's finally been determined that his heart condition won't put him at greater risk than the average astronaut, such as Harry the Red Shirt. (laughs) Gordo, back on Earth, has started seeing a psychiatrist, secretly, because everyone on this show's gotta have a secret. He doesn't want the news of his mental breakdown getting back to NASA. He does tell Tracy about the therapist, but not about his breakdown. Elena's dad lets her hang out at NASA to do her homework, and Margot meets her and starts mentoring her. She advises Elena to forget about the boy she likes and to give up on ever having a personal life, because NASA is life, and Margot can't fathom prioritizing anything else. Back on the moon, Ed is tasked with surveilling the Russians, because they know full well the Russians are watching them. In fact, Ed discovers their hidden camera in the American's ice mining crater. Throughout all of this, Shane is in the hospital and requires brain surgery, but Karen decides Ed shouldn't be told about his condition since Ed's already in a precarious position mentally. And Karen is probably in denial. But then the Russians send a fax to Jamestown offering vague condolences about his son, and Ed freaks out. But NASA still refuses to tell him the truth saying the Russians are messing with him or something. Ed reacts by breaking the Russian camera, and it's only when Shane dies that Karen finally tells Ed the truth. All right, now on to our questions. I'm sure it's no coincidence that, aside from Tracy, none of the female astronauts have kids. We do see Tracy falling down the same path as the men, neglecting her kids in favor of her job as it gets more demanding. So the question is, Is it even possible to have a work-life balance when your work is your life? And should people with extremely demanding jobs even be expected to participate in other aspects of life, like parenting and other, you know, familial obligations? So John wasn't able to join us tonight, but he sent in his answer, and I'll read it out. John says, I am at this moment the living embodiment of this question. I've had the kids all day, as well as my work responsibilities, in addition to trying to do fun stuff like Dave and Buster's quality time and tangentially participate in this wonderful new podcast. I don't know if we should be expected to be able to do it all in terms of the work-life balance, but I think we all try to. And like Tracy, Ed, and nearly every parent everywhere, we feel like we're failing at it. Until human cloning becomes a thing, Moon Show Season 8, there's only so much a working parent can do. It's nice that Moon Show is set in the 60s when there was a more prevalent model of guy works and wife raises kids. And Tracy serves as a nice microcosm, example of that beginning to shift in society. This ties into a larger conversation about the American dream being dead and no longer being able to raise a family on a single income. But that's a topic for another day. Um, He also... (laughs) (laughs) Well... I don't know that that plays into Moon Show at this point. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Um, I'm just going to go on to read uh, John's answer to another question, which is more along the same lines. 
I asked him if he thinks it's justifiable to commit yourself to a career if it means being a remote parent. And would you give up your dream job if it meant neglecting your kids? And John says that he has a cop-out answer, but it really does depend. He says, I'm a big fan of informed people being able to make the best decision for them. As long as you're aware of the potential consequences and are willing to accept them, have at it. Would I do it as a lifestyle choice? No, I don't think so. But would I spend a year or two being a remote parent if I spent that time writing and directing a film? Maybe. Maybe even probably. My kids are old enough to understand why I'm not there and also young enough for me to have time to make it up to them. Speaking only for myself, it's a question of having a time limit on my relative absence and being able to say, I know it's hard, guys, but dad loves you and I'll be back in six months or three months, one month and sticking to that. Of course, sometimes a brother just has really shitty luck and gets stuck on the moon. So, <laughs> who knows? so OK, so Rick, you must have something to say. Oh, boy, do I. Um, a, a lot of the things we're going to talk about tonight, I have direct in real life experience with um, this one is probably the lightest of them. My job in the theater is my life. Uh, a lot of people that are theater professionals, it's not just our gig. It's, it's who we are. I was this close. Y'all can see I'm about a centimeter between my thumb and finger to applying to get a job on a cruise ship. Uh, when I, I landed my first assistant technical director gig. And I could I could do that because I had no family at the time. No, I you know I was single. I didn't have any kids, so being at sea for six months months of the time wasn't going to be a problem. Um, it's not a gig you can do if you're a single parent. There are a lot of things in the theater. The theater demands a lot of time, and most of it is at nights and on weekends. So, you know, those are the times when kids are home. Uh, when my wife and I. When I when I proposed to her, you know, I already had a job waiting for me in Louisiana coming out of grad school as a technical director of a, a small college up there. Uh, and that's a whole saga on its own. <laughs> um, but my wife was had just graduated with her costume design degree. And there was no guarantee there'd be that kind of work for her up there. But she had she had a five year old daughter. And I said, you know, my work options are going to be very limited. You know, we talked about that right up front. And, you know, she decided that us being together and her not necessarily being able to work in theater was worth it. So she had to make that call and make that sacrifice because uh, it, it not so much anymore now that I'm I've been doing it for 20 years. And I'm, I, you know, I'm kind of in a position where I can, I can delegate some, you know, a lot of the 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 evening stuff. But there are still there are still several nights and weekends, and and for every show, there's like a ten day period where I am not home in the evenings. I could not do that if I was a single dad. We faced that decision, and my wife made the sacrifice, and she's been working. You know, she works for the TSA, and she works four in the morning till 1245 in the afternoon so that she's home when the kids come home from school. If I have to work late, it's not a problem because she's home in the evenings. However, Tracy doesn't have that option because Gordo's on the moon and she's an astronaut 
And so I kind of can, I can sympathize with her. I mean, Gordo and Tracy are never going to make parents of the year. <laughs> you know, they're, <laughs> they're both, they're both pieces of work in their own way, but at least Tracy has the decency to acknowledge that she's, you know, she's, she's lacking in the parenting department. Whenever Karen takes over the kids, Tracy, at least Tracy's guilty about it as opposed to like Ed, who's just a fuck wad of a dad. And I want to punch him in the face after watching these episodes, rewatching these He's episodes. So awful. Ed and Karen, they both suck. They suck so hard. <laughs> okay, I know yeah. you have things to say about Karen. We'll save that. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll stop. Because if, if you let me go, I'll, I, I, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Virginia? Well, if I may share a personal anecdote. No, my- never. <laughs> my my grandfather was in the Air Force uh, during Korea. He was not in Korea, but he worked on the planes that went to Korea. And one day, apparently on the base, they were recruiting for test pilots. And this man went home to his, I think at that point, 18-year-old wife with two kids and said... Damn, they were busy. Said, um... Anyan, I want a divorce. What? <laughs> she was like, my very Catholic grandmother was just looked at him and was like, no. And he's like, but I want to be a test pilot. She's like, no. But they'll only take single men. And she's like, I, you have a wife and kids. Like, I don't care. No. And so, like, I feel like sometimes people need to be reminded of that. Like, <laughs> Like, dude, you have a family, you're not going to do this. But sometimes people like, you know, Ed and Gordo, they just do it anyway. That's one of the most frustrating things uh, about the whole space program. And that's something the show really reflects well is if you look at the at the history of NASA and even before NASA and with the Mercury 13 and the uh, the Mercury 7 and, and the Gemini and all of those, they wanted test pilots who were family men because the optics were good mm. regardless of how horrible they were as, as husbands and fathers. And, and I, I, I highly recommend if you're interested, read Buzz Aldrin's autobiography, magnificent desolation. Cause he, he at least has the, the guts to admit he totally screwed up as a, as a, a husband. Okay. We're going to talk about some other characters who make perhaps sketchy decisions to further their careers. Um, Ellen and Larry, they get married to further their cover so their jobs won't be under threat. Scott, would you ever hide a fundamental part of yourself to protect your career? I had a difficult time coming up with an answer for this question as as I was preparing for the show, Uh, mainly due to the fact that unless I'm greatly misjudging myself, I don't think I've ever really had a a fundamental part of myself that requires hiding the way that these characters feel they have to do. And I say feel they have to do because I I I live in a in in a world of uh, of hopefulness and and thinking that being homosexual as these two characters are should should not be something that that needs to be hidden and it doesn't have to be hidden, but we know that the reality is not always as cool as that um i mean on a small scale i even i have a personal anecdote myself that 
I get to play. I get to play just like everyone else. <laughs> um, I've I've recently been uh, been placed in a new job, and basically from from the jump, I've decided that if there's going to be personal discussion, like you know, what did you do this weekend, or or how how was your night last night? If it has something to do with my relationship with my girlfriend, I'm not going to kind of talk around the fact that I'm polyamorous and thus my my girlfriend has a husband that I I know and I've I've met I've spent time with with the both of them everyone knows what's going on there are no secrets the key to polyamory is communication and we have that and I have decided not to hide that aspect and only talk about oh my girlfriend and we'll leave out everything about her it's certainly not on anything approaching the scale that that Ellen and Larry are dealing with, but it's similar in that you know being Polly is a a part of who I am these days, and I'm not wanting to keep that hidden. What if you were living in a time and place where you knew a hundred percent certainty that you being polyamorous would be a threat to your job? Like you would probably be fired. Hmm. Would you then keep it hidden? In that theoretical, I, I again lean into my idealistic view and say that if I if I was in a job that required me to hide an aspect of who I was, then it's not the job for me. So I think I would be more likely to to leave a job that required me to to hide who I am. The pragmatic part of me would probably stick around until I lined up something else, but rather than just, Oh, I I'm not allowed to say this. Well, well then I'm out. No, I would, I would strategize and, and find an exit, but I, I would certainly hold no long-term plans for staying someplace that where I would need to hide who I am in order, in order to stay there. And, Unfortunately, not everyone has that option. I wish everyone did. I wish no one had to be in that position. But I want to say that I would choose being true to myself over a workplace, knowing that if I were ever in that situation, it would depend on on the circumstances. I just hope that I'm right. Virginia, you live in Texas. So I was about to say, I, I'm a very liberal person who lives in a very conservative state, and I absolutely hide parts of myself in my workplace. Y'all know where I work, but I'm very careful, even on podcasts, even when we're joking around, talking about various life, whatever, I try not to talk about where I work or who I work for or anything like that, because all it takes is for one phrase heard by one person who tells it to another person and then I'm out of a job and probably can't find any place else to work and I gotta eat and that's the way it is. Um, I have been getting more open about certain things over the past couple of years but yeah there's there's definitely stuff that I I don't I choose not to talk about because I know there could be ramifications. Hmm. I agree I'm I mean, maybe it's different for me because I, I perhaps, you know, naturally a more secretive person. <laughs> secretive is perhaps the wrong word. I'm just not someone who chooses to put everything out there. I say that there's a lot of stuff on my blog 
That's kind of personal. <laughs> but anyway, so I I don't think it's weird for anyone to I mean, it's a pretty extreme jump to um, to get married to keep your secret. You know, that's going the extra mile because that's not just mm -hmm. that's not just withholding information. That's doing something, I guess, in that time and place illegal for the sake of keeping a secret. So that's a little bit different. That changed the whole thing because because at the time being gay was illegal. And it, there's mm -hmm. still places in the U.S. where you can be fired for being gay. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not illegal anymore yet. But yeah, there, there are places where you can still lose your job for being homosexual. And, you know, if it's working at the Circle K or McDonald's, it may not have the highest stakes. But if you've got a sweet gig at NASA and this is your life, it's going to be hard, a hard call. One thing I've learned over the over the last 50 years is that it's very easy to say, if I was there, I would X. But the truth is, you don't know what X is going to be until you're there. I had a I had an IRL experience with this very situation. In the 90s, when I was in the Air Force, I spent a few months in England and I met a young lady there and we went out on a couple of dates and we stayed friends and uh, she came to visit me and things progressed, but then she went back to England. I stayed in the US. This was long before the internet. So, you know, we were communicating via letter and the occasional very expensive phone call. Um, and I, I was head over heels for her. And then she sent me a letter, but we, you know, we hadn't committed to each other at all. Um, so she sends me a letter and she's talking about this person she met and how happy they are together. And she's totally in love with her and she hopes I'm not upset. I send her back a letter saying, you know, tell me all about this guy who succeeded where so many of us have failed and, you know, trying to be the, you know, inside I'm like, mm. but, you know, we were not, you know, there was, there was no expectation of fidelity. So I was, it was fine. And then she sends me this very timid letter back saying, um, I, I, I don't think you understand she's a girl. And so hmm. one, you know, there was the, oh, okay. This means completely all chances are off the table. So, okay, we're done. So I, you know, I had to deal with that, but that was fine. So I get, a, I call her. I'm like, all right, this is worth a call. And I get her on the phone and I'm like, I can't believe it. And she's like, what? I can't believe that you thought this would bother me. We, I told her how happy I was for it. And it was great. I was very, I was very happy for her, disappointed for us, but happy for her. And so fast forward a few years, I'm out of the Air Force. I'm back in Florida. She's in Nashville dating a country music singer, a female country music singer. And we're talking and she says her visa is going to be up soon. She can't stay in the U.S. anymore. And I, at the time I was single and I said, well, if it comes down to it, and I grant, I, I understand this is very illegal and it didn't happen. <laughs> I said, you know, if it comes down to it, let's get married and then you all can be together and I'll just live in the guest room or whatever. At the time, it seemed utterly impossible that that would happen. And it was, you know, me being gallant and stuff. And we forgot about it. And then I met and fell in love with a woman which is a very long saga, which went very bad. <laughs> but shortly after we got together, my English friend calls me and says, 
are you still willing to get married? And I, because I was in a brand new relationship, I was like, I, I can't. And I said, no. And it drove a wedge between us for like a, a, a more than a decade. And then it turned out that the, the the woman she was dating was an absolute psycho and they broke up and now she's married to a wonderful woman in, in England. And we are, our, our, our friendship is stronger than it ever was. But that is a very difficult call to make. It's easy to talk about it in, in abstract terms, but when it becomes real and then you look into, if you marry somebody, you know, for, for convenience I don't know what it, you know what it would have been like for Ellen and Larry. Larry? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But like if you if you marry somebody from out of the country, they are going to scrutinize your life for at least the first 2 or 3 years to make sure you're really married and you're sleeping in the same bed and living in the same house and everything. So it's not just we'll get married and then I'll go away and you'll have you'll you know you'll have your green card. It's it's a lot there's a lot more to it than that. So a marriage of convenience is not as easy a thing to go into as you might think as I thought until it, the the prospect was looming in front of me. So I'm going to stick with sort of the the same topic. Um, I'm going to pivot to you, Virginia. Mm. Do you think Pam did the right thing in rejecting Ellen due to her choice to put her career first and marry Larry? Would you carry on with a secret relationship and be a party to such a charade if you were in love with someone like Ellen in in that kind of powerful position, like a job where she, she can't, or at least in her mind, she can't extract herself from this lie? Yeah, I think... I think Pam is really like she knows what she wants. Ellen is still kind of like a like a baby lesbian or something. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, Pam is like she's been she's been self-aware. I think she said since like junior high or something. And she has, you know, she knows what she wants and so she knows she doesn't want that. And so I think she made the right call for herself. Yes, it was a very sad call to make and want them to work out. But yeah, I think she did the right thing. Would I be able to do something like that in those circumstances? Um, like if we're talking really personally, I'm a terrible liar. So no, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to do it. But I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of circumstances to consider. So hmm. So I guess, you know, Rick, for you, we know that you, theoretically you would have been willing, but then when it came down to it, you weren't willing to sacrifice a, a potential new relationship just for the sake of helping out a friend. Yeah. And I was very appalled at myself for that. And mm, I, I, interesting. I felt guilty about it. The only thing that absolves me now is that both of the relationships we were in at the time went south in a really bad way. So we're both better off where we are now. So it would have been a mistake. Right. But that didn't, you know, that doesn't help me at the time feeling like absolute shit because I, I said I would do this. And then when it came yeah. down to it, I didn't. All right. We're going to move on to, to Margot and her decision to blackmail NASA. It's sort of like it starts her down a path of breaking bad. Um, <laughs> it mirrors some of the immoral choices in Von Braun's past. 
But Margot probably sees herself as the opposite of Von Braun because he sacrificed people's lives for the sake of technological advancement and Margot wants to save lives. She genuinely believes that she's the best person to be running NASA. So Scott, does this justify her actions? To, to her, it certainly does. And I suspect, as was intended, to the viewer, it justifies her actions. As far as the reality of the situation, that gets that gets dicier. I I really am not sure of the answer. The, this was a tough week of questions from our in, intrepid host because <laughs> throwing out throwing out questions that are not easy to answer. That's what Moon Show is all about. Moon Show. <laughs> Very true. Um, I can only answer as usual for myself in that if I found myself in a similar situation, I don't know that I would have the the constitution to make a play like that to threaten what I in in our history, NASA was what it was. In the history of this show, NASA is already bigger than bigger and more important than than we've known it to be. And to walk into the room and swing a bat like that, there's a lot of risk. And it could have gone much, much worse. For narrative reasons, it went in Margot's direction. But knowing how badly it could have gone in the other direction, I if I were in her position, I doubt that I would have I doubt that I would have had the courage essentially to do it that way. I would have I like to think I would have looked for other avenues within the the rules so to speak to try to get what i wanted especially because doing something like that essentially puts a target on your back because now you're known at least to that one person who she had that conversation with you're known as being someone who would do such a thing and so if he ever has leverage over her then she'll get caught up in in a even more slippery slope and it is it'll just escalate and i mean we've all watched the show from He's here on out. on that slope. Yeah, we, we know <laughs> things are going to escalate eventually. Mm. And she probably at this point isn't thinking that far in the future. And, and I mean, no. of course, it's impossible to anticipate what will happen. And she's just, she's trying to further her own career as she, in her own words, she says she deserves this. And, you know, she, she is right. I mean, she has dedicated her entire life. I was going to say to Moonjo, to, to NASA. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, I definitely see where she's coming from, and I I do see it as a righteous act in as much as she does. But yeah, I, I, I'm with you, Scott, in that I don't think I would have had the courage to do something so huge, so drastic, mm-hmm. so dangerous. I want to ask I... you all a question. Mm-hmm. Do you think she was telling the truth when she told him she had made a copy and gave it to, to somebody who was going to release it if she didn't tell him not to? I wondered if she was bluffing. I think she probably was bluffing, but Von Braun is the one who gave her the information. So he knows. So she could have at any point made a call to him and said, you know what? Put that out there. Yeah. She probably did make a copy of the report for herself. That, yeah, that I, that I believe. And that was one of, you know, Margo is a very complex character and she's one of my favorites in the show because she is deeply flawed, but she still does things. She does the wrong things for the right reasons. 
mm-hmm. and she didn't want to have anything to do with Von Braun. I love the scene where, uh, and I can't remember his name. The the administrator tells her, "We need you to go pick this up." She's like, "I'm not a freaking messenger." And mm-hmm. then he's like, "The person who did this will only give it to you." And the actress, and I don't know her name, and I I should. Ren Schmidt, I think. I'm sorry. Ren Schmidt. Ren Schmidt. Um, the the performance of what? Oh shit when she realizes who it has to be mm-hmm. is brilliant because she doesn't say a word. It's just the look on her face goes from what, why are you sending me on this to, Oh no, not him. And then the whole scene with her and Von Braun is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Especially when she finally says, can I have the fucking report now? But she listens to him while she doesn't want to, she doesn't want to be there. And and the one thing that bothered me about this is that all of the information about her father, while interesting has no bearing on the rest of the plot. I almost included it in my synopsis because it does have bearing on who she is as a person. I guess. Yeah. yeah. But it it was like, you know, it felt like there was a lot of exposition for something that we know won't go anywhere. Right. I thought it was almost kind of like, I believe that Von Braun was really carrying out like his final wishes, but also sort of Von Braun saying, hey, look, your dad did terrible things too. So maybe what I did isn't as bad. You should forgive me. Like he's yes. really seeking like absolution from her. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And and you're right. You're absolutely right. That was that was kind of the whole point of the scene. But it seemed like a really big pardon me bomb to drop, and mm-hmm. then not it it doesn't ever come up again. And that's that's with hindsight, of course. You know, at, at the time, it's just you're just going through the episode. Yeah. Okay, let's pivot now to Danielle and the sacrifice she makes for Gordo. Virginia, Mm. do you think she did it out of loyalty to Gordo? Or do you think there was also an element of her wanting to go home to her husband because he's suffering uh, with PTSD from Vietnam? I wondered about this because I did rewatch the episodes. And when Danny is talking to Ed about Gordo, and she says... Um, Clayton is lost and he's not coming back. Gordo is lost, but he might still, like there might still be a chance for him. And so I'm like, is she going back for Clayton or I don't know. It seems very unclear to me. Like if she thought there, there was a chance at his recovery, like maybe that would be why she would return. Or maybe she just wants to see it through to the bitter end. I don't know. It, that, that line gave me pause about your question. So she was already, you know, Ed had already said, you two are going back. She she was escorting Gordo back no matter what happened. But yeah, she absolutely decided to do that because she knew that if Gordo was grounded, it would be, he would, it would destroy him. I don't think she anticipated some of the looks she was going to get around NASA where everybody kind of, oh yeah, I guess you didn't know what you were doing up there or whatever. And just instead of like, oh man, I had an accident and I'll recover and go back up to space sometime. Like people were really giving her looks and that realization she had on her face, you could kind of tell like she was still expecting the same respect and they just- Yeah, that's it. And then people start to question whether any women, like, you know, can Ellen now be a competent commander because this woman has made a mistake and then Ellen has to start defending herself. So Danielle perhaps didn't realize that she would be 
throwing right. all women under the bus as right. irrational as that as a reaction as that is for other people to to make these assumptions going forward she perhaps didn't realize it's surprising she didn't realize it because we all remember the the in the show the the chorus of questions after uh, armstrong kind of toppled the lander on the way down to the moon and everyone was wondering if men could really be astronauts after something like that <laughs> <laughs> but to your point, I mean, maybe she did realize it because in that scene where she's walking down the hallway with her arm in a sling and then she takes a deep breath before walking into the room with the other astronauts, like she sort of knows that she's being perceived differently. But yeah, mm-hmm. I have to assume she she didn't know the extent to which people would be disrespectful towards her going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I got the feeling that she expected the reactions that she personally was going to get. but the the lasting effects and the ripples from that were not entirely anticipated people wondering if women could could actually you know function properly in space and perform missions and be on the moon and what we see echoes of this even into into season two i won't go into details for the sake of spoilers but there's clear evidence of the lasting opinions and reactions to her breaking her arm years years down the road. I'd, I'd like to point out something. Again, there there's a lot more in this show that that I have experienced in real life than I really realized until we're we're going through this again. Granted, I've never been in a you know two hundred square foot moon base for six months or whatever, but I I was in the service. Uh, I was in the Air Force and. Air Force basic training is one of the most mentally challenging ones of the services. It's not as physically challenging, you know, the Marines and the Army, they get their asses kicked daily. Air Force basic is designed to push you to your mental limits to make sure if you're someone sitting in a bunker with the key, you're not going to crack when they say launch the missiles. And I made decisions at that time under stress that I think about now and I'm like, what the, what the hell was wrong with me? Why would I, why did I react that way? And that's, and that's, you know, that and and other things are irrelevant and won't go into is one of the reasons why I'm very big on the, you don't know how you react in a stressful situation until you're in it. Yes. I think if Danielle was thinking clearly and thinking about the ramifications of what she was doing, she may not have done it the way she did it, but they were in a base the size of an RV, 240,000 miles from home, with relief being two weeks away every two weeks, a commander who's an asshole, with a bunkmate who's losing his mind, with a, a boyfriend at home, boyfriend or husband? Or the, husband. husband? Husband. With a husband at home who's losing his mind, and everybody, and the, and the weight of being the only black woman in NASA on her shoulders, I don't think it's fair to put that much weight, much extra weight on her to think that she should be thinking about what's ha- what's going to happen down the line. She made a call. She was like, this man who I am closer to these two men than I've ever been to anyone in my life. This man's life is on the line if he goes home the way he is. And this man isn't going to pull any punches because that's how he is. I've got to do something. And she made a call. She totally owns it later. But I don't think that there was any any moment where she was thinking about, oh, this will this will fuck up things for black women forever. 
I think it was, I need to make, I need to do what I'm doing now. Well, that's it. She made a compassionate call, but she has to have considered whether or not that was the right thing for Gordo in the sense that hiding a mental breakdown is not mm -hmm. going to help him in the future. Mm -hmm. So That's she, she, us looking at it now when mental when mental health is a, a an issue we consider to be to not have stigma. You know, look, well, look, there at is what, still stigma. So, it, yeah, imagine how much worse it was in the 70s. Exactly. You know, and, and, and we see it all through this show where they're like, if the shrinks find out about this, I'm grounded. And if you if you study the history of NASA and the test pilots and all that stuff, you couldn't show any sign of mental weakness or you you would literally they take your wings. And yet it was okay to be an alcoholic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And smoke like a chimney <laughs> and beat your children and wife and all that crap. I'm not saying it was right, but that's that's <laughs> how it was then. Yeah. While the wit there was there were no women astronauts at that time. So this is where the show is speculating. I would think the pressure on especially a black woman on the moon would be even even higher. What about Karen's decision not to reveal Shane's condition to Ed? Rick, is it ever oh. justifiable to withhold crucial information or even lie to protect someone who's already struggling? Not about your children, no. I didn't realize until rewatching these episodes just how awful Karen was as a mother. Um, we all knew that Ed sucked as a father, and the call where Ed was giving... Uh, Shane shit about crying. That was that was heartbreaking. I've, yeah, I've it been was there. Very heartbreaking. I have been the recipient of. I'll give you something to cry about. This was really hard. I'll just say my my mother's second husband was an alcoholic who beat the shit out of all of us, and that's where I got the if you you know stop crying and you know and when I was watching this I realized he worked in the aerospace industry, so. While I despise Ed with every fiber of my being for being a shitty parent, I, I understand. Understand is not the right word. I know where he's coming from because I've been there. It's that macho boys don't cry, suck it up, be a man bullshit that men of that period, the fucking boomers, mm -hmm. they grew up with that and then they inflicted it on us. But I forgot how shitty Karen was to Shane. The last thing she ever did was slap him across the face. Exactly. And then, but earlier, she goes to talk, she she brings Shane to talk to Ed after the the uh the cherry water bomb meter. Incident, the, water the, the cherry bomb says, wait here, I'll tell you when you can come in. She doesn't tell Ed what's going on. Shane is like, don't tell dad, don't tell dad. I have fucking been there begging my mother not to tell my father because they were, you know, they were separate. They were divorced. Don't tell dad. Don't tell dad. And she doesn't tell dad. But she fucking lies to Shane and tells him he did. She did. Yeah. Yeah. And then Shane acts out again. My friend, my, my best friend, he was the best man at my wedding. He has a daughter. And then they had a son. And that son died at six months old from SIDS. So, it, it yeah, it, it, and, you know, I, I was there for him as much as I could be. But when Sharon was born because of that, she was she became the most important thing in my universe. And to the point where I almost I almost killed myself because uh, I wouldn't leave her side because 
you know, when, when you're, when you're having a baby, you have to go through a bunch of classes and mm-hmm. they were like, make sure your baby sleeps on her back. You know, do, you know, the, the, otherwise they'll suffer, you know, don't do this. Don't do that. They make you terrified. Mm-hmm. And, and I already had that terror in me because it was not just a statistic. So I have lived the past 11 years knowing that if anything happened to my daughter, it would absolutely destroy me. As a result of that, every time we part company, no matter what it is, even if I'm just going to the store to get cat food, I will go into her bedroom and I'll give her a hug and I'll make sure that the last thing I say to her is I love you. So that if God forbid something happens, the last thing she remembers hearing from me is I love you. And I, I, I'm, I'm really sorry. I, I was hoping I could. Don't apologize. You don't need to apologize at all. I, no. when I, when I, I re watching Ed and Karen treat Shane like such shit. And the last thing either of them did before he died was tell him what a waste of time he was. It, 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 it just, awful. it tears my heart apart and I know what's coming and I know what's ahead but it doesn't absolve them of this. But that's it. It's almost like the show is punishing them for their shitty parenting. Yeah. Or it's like, I mean, you could view it as a warning to parents to do exactly what you do, Rick, to always make sure your daughter hears, I love you in all situations. So that she'll have that memory rather than leaving your kid with an angry memory. Yeah. And and I'm not I'm not criticizing the show at all. Oh don't, no, don't, I mean that's yeah. the thing. That's what's great about you know quality TV is that it it does stir our real life emotions. Well, you know what's funny? When The Walking Dead came out, I I didn't watch it. I won't watch it. I am so I, I have been up to here with zombies forever. But people kept saying it's not about the zombies, it's about the people and how they deal with the zombies. And I really didn't get that until this show this show isn't about what the space program would have been if the russians got to the moon before us it's about how the people involved in the space program if the russians got to the to the moon before us are dealing with it if you had told me that i would have i wouldn't have watched the show because i don't care about it that's i normally don't care about that stuff but the mm-hmm. the performances and the writing on this show is so strong and they don't shy away from this crap and as we'll see going on, there's even more stuff they don't shy away from. When uh, when Karen got home and the police car was in her driveway, that's when I started crying. And then I couldn't watch the next episode again. I couldn't go through that because mm. they did it so well. Mm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it, it the show is so good, but it hurts when, you know, they 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 don't turn away from stuff that just stabs you through the heart because i kind of i guess looked at it a little bit differently like what if i was what if i was the person that was stuck on the moon something happened to my stepkid would i want to know or not and there's no there's no right answer because if you tell me i'm going to be cooped up here with nothing to do i'm going to smash everything in sight and not have a single ounce of like mental health support in the entire galaxy but if if you don't tell me, I'm going to be mad at you when I get home. Like, why don't you tell? This is a, a vital information that I need to know about my family and my child. There's no right answer to it. Yeah, it's lose-lose. Um, yeah, but it was devastating. The fact, like Rick said, the way that they treated him right before he died, I, I had like a visceral reaction to it. It was just, 
It was terrible. I would totally want to know. If I was on the moon, I don't care how far away I'm in, I would want to know. I think Karen made the wrong call. I think that's all she was capable of in that moment. I think she was so devastated and so deeply in denial. Like she was, she was in she serious was, denial. Yeah. yeah, she was absolutely refusing to believe the situation was as dire as it was. And so I think in her mind, if she were to tell Ed, it would make it real. And she didn't want it to be real. And so she was protecting herself as much as Ed. That's a good point. Would I want to know? Uh, if I were in Karen's position, yes, I would tell Ed. If I was were in Ed's position, would I want to know? I cannot answer that question. I do not know. Because, I mean, we saw Gordo break down, but we, we could see it in Ed's face. And, mm. I mean, kudos to the actors. I mean, because you could see the strain of being alone there. Yeah. The, the toll it was taking. So it's a terrible situation either way because not knowing it all went to shit anyway because then the Russians send that fax. And right now that he knows NASA withheld that information, it makes him all the more upset. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, you could see it as like honesty is the best policy, but. Was uh, it, uh, sorry, this is kind of a side tangent, but was it. We don't do common... that. Because <laughs> I seem to remember when I read something about Apollo 13, the mission control debated whether to tell them, you know, if they were not going to make it back or not. And that so contingency was in place for all Apollo missions. NASA knows that they're all under huge mental stress. And so adding more onto that is just something that right. perhaps that it could endanger the mission to be. Right. One, th one, you know, you mentioning Apollo 13 has absolutely nothing to do with them about to say, <laughs> but I just remembered something. I did find it interesting that Apollo, what was it, 24 that blew up? 23. 23. When Krantz went up there, Michael Collins was in there, was yeah. one of the, was one mm. of the astronauts. Um, I read his autobiography. You know, he's the one who was in the command module while Apollo Eleven was on the on the moon. Yeah, Collins. That was his only mission. I think he was. He may have flown a Gemini mission, but he he did not do anything else after Apollo Eleven, and that was his own doing. He did not. He did not want to play the game, the NASA game. And reading his autobiography is very entertaining. Because he totally did not buy into the astronaut macho mythos and stuff like that. So he didn't fly again because he didn't put up with the shit and and he was, he was happy. Yeah. So it was interesting that they put him in that mission. But I looked it up just because I because I'm me. If a Saturn V had blown up, it would not have been as sedate as that explosion was. Mm -hmm. It would have taken out everything within about a... a a three mile radius mission control would not have just watched it on a monitor. It would have had windows blown out. Uh, the astronauts would not have survived. <laughs> they might've survived, but there would have been a, a 30 mile radius of broken windows and destruction because that, at that point I even looked it up to make sure. Cause I was like a fully fueled Saturn five would not just go up in a, a pretty fireball. And then I thought, well, I don't know if it was fully fueled, but the astronauts did not board the Saturn V until after it was fully fueled. If a Saturn V had blown up like that one did, it would have been devastating for miles around. Hmm. That's interesting because it, it does bring up another question 
that I am going to save for a different episode. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> just, now, just, just really, really quickly, I watched, I've, I've witnessed a shuttle launch from as close as you can get. And that was three miles away. And for that very reason, mm. if a shuttle went up, three miles was the minimum safe distance from that explosion. Right. Wow. And the Saturn V was bigger. Well, how in real life, how close is mission control to the it's launch three, pad? It's three miles away. Okay. Yeah. I've been that's to mission fun. control. It's freaking oh, sweet. Oh, that's fun. That's cool. <laughs> I'll tell you that story someday later. But uh... Okay. <laughs> For now, we will wrap it up. Scott, do you have anything to plug? In addition to being on this podcast, you can find me hosting that Star Trek podcast, as well as appearing on Cosmic Potato and Captain Game Show, all right here on the Infinite Potato Alliance. And outside of podcast work, you can find my graphic artwork on my very own website, www.planetrisecreative.com. Virginia, what have you got going on? You can find me here on the Infinite Potato Alliance um, doing my podcast, Wait You've Never Seen, where my co-host and I are talking about Doctor Who, but we're watching in River Song's timeline order. So that's very interesting. We're getting up to, I think, the third or fourth episode in the timeline. So lots of stuff happening. And Rick, you got anything for us? You can find me on that Star Trek podcast and uh, occasionally on the Cosmic Potato super fan talk podcast and even more occasionally on captain game show and uh hopefully soon uh a show called all you nerd to know which is in the works looking forward to it and you can find me at superanemic.com where i post weekly comic recaps of star trek episodes and with that we say bye bob bye bob bye bob bye bob bye bob don't fucking hi bob me Thank you for listening to Moon Show, a For All Mankind podcast on the Infinite Potato Alliance. For more great shows, please go to infinitepotato.com. Our theme music is Small Victory by Steve Combs, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. You can find more of his music at freemusicarchive.org slash music slash Steve underscore Combs. <laughs>